My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Well, there I stood in the driveway with a handful of greasy pancakes and my mouth open, wondering what the heck I saw. What did that? Picture a flying saucer landing on Earth. What environment comes to mind? The dry plains of Roswell, New Mexico? The crisp evergreen forests of New Hampshire, where Betty and Barney Hill were abducted? Maybe you've seen a UFO yourself. Odds seem to be higher for those in the state of Wisconsin, America's Dairyland, and the subject of tonight's discussion with Wisconsin native Jeff Finnup, host of the Badgerland Legends podcast, who's prepared to expose the strange history of UFOs over Wisconsin, a state that has played an integral role in the study of ufology. Thank you for being here. Let's get on with the show. Here is where this uh, flying saucer, this UFO, landed. Right here about where I'm standing. It was a big, huge thing, and uh, I wondered what the heck it was. I was in my kitchen uh, having a bite of lunch, and I turned around, put the dishes in the sink, and I looked out the window, and that's when I first saw this thing coming straight down, just like an elevator. First, I thought the roof went off of my house, and I thought, no, the roof is green, and this is bright. What the heck is it? So I rushed out to see what it was, and by that time, there was a hatchway opening up in the top of it, just like the trunk of your car. And in there, there stood a little man. I say a little man, about five foot tall, holding up a jug, and he motioned he wanted to drink. He motioned for water. So I walked up to him to get this jug, 
And uh, I looked at his eyes, and they were so penetrating that I had to look away. So I went to the basement to get this water. I thought, well, they want water, so I'll take it up to them and see what happens. And with that, I brought the water up, and he was looking at me when I first came out of the basement. But I didn't look at his face until I got right up to him. Then I looked up, and I handed the jug up with both hands, and I had that same look in his eyes, a sort of a penetrating look. So when he took the water, I balanced myself with this hand against the machine, and I stepped back a few steps. With that, uh, he set the jug down, and he gave me a salute with the back of his hand, a gesture of thanks, I presume. I noticed this little man, the same size of a man, right to the side, the right side of the hatchway, cooking, uh, cooking these pancakes, which I have one here yet. He didn't say a word. He just reached over, and he got a handful of them, four of them, and he handed them down to me, and uh, they were hot and greasy. And this, uh, if that was their food, God help them, because I took a bite of one of them, and it tasted like a piece of cardboard. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the brand new edition of Esoteric America. I am here with my co-host, Sergeant Salisbury. For some reason, that is what he's choosing to call himself this episode. (laughs) And you know him. He's a great guy. He's from the Rising from the Ashes podcast. Maybe you're listening to this on the Rising from the Ashes podcast feed. I hope so. Maybe you're listening to this on the audio feed and you're saying, wait, this is Esoteric America. I should watch the video. You might be right. Hmm. I will say there's not a lot for... You know, you're not going to miss much if you just listen to the audio. This episode, there's one or two maps, but we really didn't look at much that I would say you're going to totally miss out on if you just listen to the audio. But you're in for a treat this episode. Roman, what did you think of today's conversation? I mean, we've had this guy on the show before. He's great. He does great research. But were you expecting to find so many UFO connections to the state of Wisconsin? (laughs) <laughs> absolutely not right it was quite taken away with the wonderful characters that came to play finding out a lot of the true homestead of ufology coming out from wisconsin i just i don't know why i i would ever doubt such a thing i just i mean yeah like we're like we may or may not bring up in the show you kind of automatically start thinking of deserts so when you think about the cold frosty cheese country you know, it doesn't really come into play, but Jeff did a beautiful presentation. You guys are really going to dig it. I love Jeff, you know, like just he, him telling us stories about Wisconsin for the second time now. I'm like, I need to get my ass out there. That's kind of where I'm at this point. Like, I really want to go check it out. I love cheese, bro. So I might find my way out there too. Apparently Bigfoot likes cheese too. So maybe we can mm, do a future episode on uh, Bigfoot Wisconsin reports because the first time Jeff was on the show, I think we mostly talked about like the Wisconsin weirdness, but we can't forget. We talked about Wisconsin with Steven Snyder as well when we went into the whole Taliesin Frank Lloyd Wright thing. So lots of stuff for folks who are just catching Esoteric America for the first time. We've got, what, 15 or 20? I think it's like 20, 25 episodes of Esoteric America that we've recorded over the past year or two. And like we said multiple times, we're going to be bringing it back. It's not you know going anywhere by any means. 
Tara will still be joining us. She just didn't want to join us for this episode. And that's about it. Yeah, that's all I have to say for the intro. The stinky cheese man and the fairly stupid tales. What are you showing us right now, Roman? Did you not read this growing up? No. <laughs> Who yeah, gave this is, you this? This is the stinky cheese man. <laughs> it's actually a fantastic fairy tale book. I grew up, I had that in my collection growing up, and I just figured we could relate to those stinky cheese dudes. Oh, that book never made it to my shelves. I was reading <laughs> nonfiction books when I was a kid, like a little nerd. <laughs> Glorious. Yeah, man, I had a great time. I'm really stoked to get the ball rolling again on this. We had a couple really good ones lined up already for you guys. So, you know, we're back in action, going all across the country, and we want to talk to you. So get inspired by this. Start looking up what's in your backyard and reach out to us because we yes. want to talk to you. We want to go and traverse all of the land. And we guarantee, even if you think you live in a boring town or whatever, I guarantee you it's not. And you're going to find some really fruitful stuff to bring forth to the table. So do it and reach on out to us because we want to hear from you. Yeah. And, you know, don't be intimidated. Yes, we do uh, longer episodes, but we could do an hour presentation. I think that's about what people uh, are used to. You know, a lot of YouTube content that I watch is long form, more than an hour, but that's what people like. They like the short, you know, digestible stuff. So don't be intimidated. Hit us up. If you live in a weird part of America, whether you think so or not, you probably do. So do a little research, put a presentation together. <laughs> you know, all it takes is some photos and some info. You know, you just got to throw it all together. Canva.com lets you do it all for free. If you pay, you get some more, you know, features, but I think you could put a Canva presentation together for free pretty easily. And uh, yeah, don't be shy. Hit us up and we'll have you on the show. But in, in, without further ado, what do you say? Let's get into this episode with Jeff Finnup from the Wisconsin Legends podcast, uh, Badgerland Legends on Instagram. All the links are in the description. And uh, yeah, enjoy this episode. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are back again on My Family Thinks I'm Crazy. Of course, this is not your typical My Family Thinks I'm Crazy episode. Many of you may remember Esoteric America, a show that Roman, Tara, Chad, and I started and are continuing. And today we are bringing you another episode of Esoteric America. Roman, of course, my lovely co-host is here and our guest today Jeff will be joining us to talk about the weird history of Wisconsin UFOs. And I love it. I love the timing. I know, Jeff, you probably have been listening to some of the UFO topics that I've been bringing on to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy show. And you may have even heard me say I want to dive further into this subject because it's always been an interest of mine. So perfect timing. But before we get to that, Jeff, introduce yourself and and tell everybody what we're going to be talking about today. Kick, kick it off. Let's go. Yeah. Thanks for having me back, Mark. So my name is Jeff Finnup. I'm with Badgerland Legends. I write about the people, places, and things that make Wisconsin legendary. 
And the topic tonight, as you alluded to, Wisconsin UFOs, a weird history. So we'll get right into it. You know, Wisconsin, it's a small Midwestern state, but it's played an outsized role in the field of ufology and the history of the phenomenon. Now, Wisconsin, it's like right in the middle. It ranks about 25th in landmass and only 20th in population. But it seems like whenever high strangeness involves, there's some tie to Wisconsin. So where Wisconsin's UFO history starts is where many of, I guess, U.S. US UFO history starts. It's with these airship sightings of the 1890s. So the sightings actually started in 1896 on the West Coast. Now, these manned aerial crafts, they were normally spotted in evening or at night. Many were described as bright lights. Some witnesses claimed to see men peddling the crafts across the sky. Now, this specific Midwest flap that I'm going to be talking about, it started in the spring of 1897. The first one that I've seen documented was in March 10th of 1897, although they started in the fall of 1896 in the San Francisco, um, Sacramento, that area up there of Northern California. But for the ones we're going to be talking tonight, March 10th of 1897 was when the first one was spotted over Kansas City. And that was March 10th. And then March 20th, a mysterious airship appeared over Omaha, Nebraska. April 2nd, Kalamazoo, Michigan. And then Nashville, Illinois. And then on April 6th, hundreds again witnessed them in Omaha. So on April 8th, we have Wolf Creek, Iowa pop up. So you see kind of um, they're, they're popping up all throughout the Midwest and not really in a linear fashion. And then until April 9th, one again was seen in Omaha, Nebraska, but also Chicago, Illinois. Now that Chicago is at the time and still is the Midwest most populous city. So when it showed up over Chicago, people really took an interest in the phenomenon. So on April 9th, 1897, an initial crowd gathered on Oakley Street in Chicago's north side and watched what was described by various witnesses as a red light, a manifestation, and an airship. Now, eventually thousands of people saw this ship over Chicago, but it didn't stay in one place. Now, that night, later in the evening, they saw it in Evanston, Illinois. And if you are on YouTube right now, you can see the map that I kind of laid out here. So it traveled north of Chicago to Evanston, Illinois, but then it looks like it kind of took a westward course up towards Madison, Wisconsin, where it was spotted over Lake Mills, and then again north to the north woods of Wisconsin. Right. So when I was researching this, I was like, well, was this just somebody taking some, you know, editorial license with the facts saying, well, of course, it it floated off and then it passed over all these Midwest towns. But I found the next day in the Madison newspaper called the Wisconsin State Journal, still around today, Thursday night at nine o'clock, a number of reliable people of the village of Lake Mills saw this airship pass over. 
So it kind of corroborated that story coming out of Chicago saying that maybe there's something to this phenomenon. Maybe it's not just a, a bunch of jokers miscategorizing, miscategorizing like a celestial body like Venus or the North Star or something like that. So that kind of made me scratch my head. And then the following day, April 10th, Milwaukee. Now, although that although that Chicago airship on April 9th was tracked heading north to Evanston, then towards Madison, and then to Wausau, which is Wisconsin's North Woods, kind of lost track. I don't think there was more than probably some lumber camps up there at the time. But another ship must have been spotted because the newspapers that morning for the Milwaukee Sentinels, it actually said that airship coming this way. So they saw it in Chicago. Milwaukee caught news of it and actually wrote the headline. They saw the airship or airship coming this way. So Milwaukeeans were primed to look up to the skies. And what do you know? They saw an airship that night. So on the night of April 10th, 1897, Milwaukee had a visitation. Witnesses all over Milwaukee looked to the skies and they saw what they described as an airship. They called it an airship because the term flying saucer won't be invented for another 50 years. And it was actually spotted by a downtown police officer while he was standing on Broadway in Milwaukee's downtown. He described the airship as looking like four bright stars put together. It flashed the colors of white, red, and green. Although a local astronomer argued the airship may be only a star, this policeman, he stood firm on his story. He claimed that the craft dipped and bobbed wild, wildly several times before it sped off. So it seems like there was something to these events. Now we get to Madison the next day. So it sounds like one passed over on the 9th and the 10th in Milwaukee. Another one pops up on the 11th. And then it said a great many Madisonians were confident they saw the airship last night. This was a headline that ran in the local paper. It said brilliant lights are reported, especially by those with opera glasses. Now, I like that detail because it just kind of <laughs> is shows the times you see kind of these, you know, the Victorian era people um, standing on the lakeshore looking up over Lake Mendota. If you've ever been to, to Madison, it's on an isthmus. And the northern lake, northern most lake, the largest lake in Madison is called Mendota. And you could just see people looking up and seeing this airship putting on their opera glasses and getting a closer look. But it says that the local observatory, which would probably have been the University of Madison at the time or Wisconsin at Madison, uh, wasn't enthusiastic about it. They dismissed it as people seeing stars. They said the brightest star at the time was Jupiter, Venus, and Sirius. Of course, we know Jupiter and Venus as planets now, but I think they just categorized all celestial bodies as stars at the time. So they said that these stars are celestial bodies. They don't jiggle up and down to the extent, but the, perhaps the gazers saw the lights of streamers or kites on Lake Mendota. But then the paper also says that, well, it's not yet boating season, on Mendota. So it wasn't people out boating on the Madison lakes, flying kites with lights on them. So it's kind of hard to say, 
Oh yeah, that's definitely was the phenomenon, but many people of Madison witnessed it and we're not sure what to think of it. Now with, so these, with, this, with these, the boating or the kites with the lights, this was kind of a common occurrence that was happening well, that, back in the 1900s. You know, I'm not sure about that, but that was just one of the plausible and, skeptical interpretations was like, mm. oh, they must have just attached <laughs> lanterns to the tails of their kites how much, and floated up there. How much detail or descriptive language is used in these reports? Because for the most part, I've heard lights being described, but when I see maybe like the concept of airships or even, you know, pictures of them from, you know, artist depictions, they look like sailboats in the sky, right? But is that what people are describing or is that a way that people conceptualize the flying vehicle in their time? Like what... Did they actually see what what you know we saw in like obviously in this what was it the first slide that you showed like that yeah. was an artist's depiction of a flying airship but is that necessarily what people are seeing or are they just seeing a light and because it's moving calling it a ship in the air? So some people said you know in Milwaukee they said it came close enough that they thought about anchoring it to the the city hall there, which was actually the tallest inhabited building in the country at the time was the Milwaukee city hall. So, and people said that some, some people described seeing occupants in them. Some people said they just saw like empty interiors, you know, the accounts, they were widely, I guess, described, you know, everything from just, you know, four lights blinking red, white, and green to um, actually seeing like occupants peddling through them through the sky. And like you said, Mark, there, the literature, you know, shows these depictions of almost like boats or like, what do you call it? The envelope of an air balloon underneath it with occupants. But the craziest one comes out of the Minneapolis daily times. So this is probably the most thorough description that I've read so far, and I have it up here on the screen for you all to read, but the Minneapolis Daily Times ran this story about an airship anchoring in Rice Lake. Rice Lake is like a, um, it was probably like a lumbering community at the time. Um, It was Wisconsin's Northwoods. And it says that the airship actually anchored in Rice Lake and the crew called for a physician. The distinguished patient, the captain, was suffering an acute attack of la grip. Now, I had never heard of this, so I looked it up, and it's uh, some form of Russian influenza that's still going around today. So after a couple of hours, the captain insisted that the doctor continue on the journey on the airship with them. So they called this doctor, and they actually named him in the article Dr. J.P. Valby. So it says that he boarded the ship, he brought his instruments with him, he went to administer treatment on the doctor, which I believe lasted an hour. And then the doctor, he wanted to depart the ship and get on with his night. But he was held at rifle point. Well, a tussle ensued and the doctor wrestled the rifle away. Now, the ship at the time had already set sail and was about 40 feet into the air. But when the doctor bailed with the rifle that he 
wrestled away from the assailant and landed in a pond where he was later rescued. It says in the article that he kept the art, the, he kept the rifle, but the airship continued on its way with the doctor's medical equipment on board. So there is, I guess, kind of to answer your initial question about the description, this is probably the most fantastical account that I found. Oh, yeah. And also the most descriptive. I I asked because, you know, a lot of times people will talk about like modern UFOs and say, oh, it's not a modern phenomena. Look, there's history of this kind of thing going on, going back into ancient times, people seeing things in the sky. But this, to me, I think shows possibly a different, maybe separate or loosely connected phenomena where you have people using flying craft before the rest of the population knows what these vehicles are, because how else would they have things like rifles and why would they need something like medical equipment if they weren't human beings, right? Like it, it just, to me, and again, we don't have to entertain this theory completely i just want to throw this out there this sounds a lot like a breakaway civilization Mm -hmm. to me why else would they need a doctor i mean if they were space aliens they definitely wouldn't have rifles yeah yeah they would have some other kind of advanced weapon not a rifle of the time and the interesting thing about this article and you can look it up you know either on the youtube video or minneapolis daily times i found it on newspapers.com from april 13th of 1897 where it names the doctor it names the people that rescued the doctor you know it's a very descript article with lots of details So if somebody had, you know, the more sleuthing capabilities or the willingness to actually look in to see, okay, was this doctor actually practicing medicine and try to corroborate this? And, you know, if they could track down this gun, I'd love to see, like, you know, what's the maker's mark on it? When was it manufactured? Where was it from? And just kind of to corroborate this. So just to kind of wrap up the airship phenomenon, you know, skeptics, they concluded that people were just being predisposed to popular literature of the time. Now, the ironic part, or maybe coincidental part, is H.G. Wells' classic, The War of the Worlds, was serialized in Cosmopolitan in the U.S. and Pearson's Magazine in England in April of 1897. So War of the Worlds came out at the same month, but it was serialized. So they would release chapters of the book in these popular magazines that people would buy. And then once that ran, then they put it together as a whole novel. So that was kind of interesting to see kind of correlated. So it definitely showed that the public had an appetite for flying machines and visitors from another world, but that Omaha sightings that I laid out in early March, that would have predated the release of this specific war of the worlds thing so that wouldn't have necessarily had influence on it but there was other literature of this flying ship and phenomenon kind of percolating through the culture already so it wasn't a completely alien concept no pun intended so that's really interesting especially with the hg wells tie in there at the end at this time period is in fact, you know, getting to the point where we're starting to, you know, have 
more like sci-fi be normalized or mm-hmm. these ideas and concepts come out. But H.G. Wells, you know, that man was connected, right? When War of the Worlds was read on the radio. Uh, that was by Orson Welles, no relation. Another Wisconsin man, ironically. Oh, really? Yeah. Yes, Orson Welles did that. And I think that was in the 1930s, but I have to check my notes well, on that. For H.G. Wells to keep him in the frame, he wrote a book called The Shape of Things to Come in 1933, which talks about a war, a great war destroying Europe, and then a plague comes, and then a benevolent dictator, benevolent, (laughs) sets up paving a way for world peace. And right here on the Wikipedia, it mentions how, though this is a work of fiction, several of Wells' short-term predictions from the shape of things to come would come true, such as the aerial bombings of whole cities, which was presented in more detail than in his previous book, The War in the Air, and the eventual development of weapons of mass destruction. So here we go having a author, you know, just so happens to imagine this idea of, you know, air forces being this major weapon to rule the world. What if he wasn't predicting things? What if he knew about this breakaway civilization that had mastered air flight, you know, before anyone else had and had been using that to subvert governments? I mean, it it could explain why all the nations came to join the UN. I mean, who's behind mm-hmm. the UN? Maybe it's this breakaway civilization. But anyways, yeah, it's an interesting concept and you know, they do call them extraterrestrials, which you know, indicates extraterritory. So maybe yeah, there is some of extraterritory that these this breakaway civilization comes from and that's why we weren't privy to the technology. So Air balloons as a method of traveling, you know, it dates back to 1783 in France. And the actual airship phenomenon, like steam-powered ships, was the mid-1800s. So this wasn't completely foreign technology, but, you know, for people to see it in mass, it definitely was. It was something to behold. So, you know, we could speculate all night on it, and I, and I love that, but, I, you know, so many conclusions can be drawn from it. So 1897, it was an auspicious year because the Yerkes Observatory in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, right on the shores of Geneva Lake, was opened. Now, it opened, let's see here, it's been called the birthplace of modern astrophysics, and it had the largest refracting telescope in the world at the time. Now, what's important to our story tonight is that it was... One of the employees there at the facility in 1932 was a gentleman by the name of J. Allen Hynek. Now, he's known today as the father of ufology, but when he was working there, he was a Ph.D. candidate. So from his biography, and they called it the Close Encounters Man is the name of his biography, and pulled a quote from there. That's a pretty sweet, high-ranking biography name right there i'm not gonna yeah, lie it's, and that's it's awesome. and that was because of his role in project blue book the cases that he studied most closely were of close encounters so this in 1932 he's a phd student you know he's fresh out of you know his undergrad he's coming to this observatory on it's a remote observatory it's across the lake from lake geneva uh for those that don't know about lake geneva 
It is just north of Chicago. It's where a, a lot of the Chicago big wigs, the moneyed people, would build their vacation homes. Well, they built this observatory right on the lake in Williams Bay, which is across the lake. Uh, the town is called Lake Geneva. The lake is called Geneva Lake. It's kind of confusing, but that's the, the long and the short of it. So a quote from that book is, you go to this observatory with just a few other people there, and you feel like you might have, you might be a monk looking at the heavens, learning the secrets of the universe. You can see how that would have a spiritual feeling in the right personality. Night after night, under the 90-foot main dome, Heineck peered into the firmament, studying the ancient light given off by distant yellow and white dwarf stars and forgetting that anything else ever existed or ever would. Science and mysticism came together every night in the eyepiece of his telescope. Time, time vanished, dimensions contracted. The whole thing has sort of a mystical quality to it. And then Heineck later confessed that one shouldn't say that in connection with science, I guess. So he's kind of lamenting the fact that at the time they're trying to separate science from mysticism, science from um, any spiritual realm. They're trying to kind of separate it on its own. And he's seeing the connections between, you know, both the, the modern day science of astrophysics and then the old kind of art of astrology and studying um, the sky clock and um, the sky patterns and kind of the mythologies that's been crafted onto the sky. So in Heineck's formative years, he read Rudolf Steiner and was admittedly an acolyte of Manly P. Hall. He was also a member of Heindel's Rosicrucian Society. Oh, wow. Where he, he, he enrolled um, into a course to get a $100 book at the time, which was a lot of money in 1932. And a lot of his colleagues said, you're paying $5 a month to get a book. Why don't you just go and buy a motorcycle like the rest of us? So it's kind of a funny aside to think he's nerdy. He's he's geeking out on this esoteric literature in 1932. And we'll we'll get into kind of the Heineck and the Blue Book stuff in a little bit here. Because he really weaves through the entire narrative of kind of Wisconsin ufology and the story that's about to unfold. So you said he was, because Steiner was around at this time. So was he bumping shoulders with Steiner and the Theosoph Theosophical Society, or was he just, he was just a fan of his work? He was a fan of the work. He was, uh, he sent away for that Rosicrucian text. And then he was also reading Manly P. Hall's The Secret Teaching of All Ages. And he was uh, reading Steiner's stuff as well. So he was kind of immersed in the literature as a grad student and a PhD candidate. And it's kind of funny seeing how he has been characterized as the debunker and the skeptic and the guy that just wants the facts on the UFOs. But then he's got kind of the secret knowledge or the secret history of um, looking into kind of more mystical texts and theosophical texts. And so some people said that he was a theosophist. I haven't found anything to confirm that, but he was definitely into the esoteric works, you know, by Steiner and Hall. It, yeah. Yeah, it was definitely going around at this time. This time period is just thick of, in the thick of it, right before the wars, it was like there was so many, so much great work coming out. Yeah, and one of the the quotes is, you know, because this was the period, it was after the Great War, 
leading up to World War II. And it was kind of a time of peace, but I think there was also a lot of inklings like, okay, well, we know that one war can start. What about another one? And then he said in a quote that he had immersed himself so much in his studies that he, in 1932, he had barely even heard of Hitler. And that was kind of the rise of the Nazi party during that time. But he was immersed in his literature and studying the sky and working on his PhD. So I just thought that was kind of an interesting kind of look behind the man that we look as the uh, father of ufology. So we talked about the father of ufology. Now let's trace the maternal bloodline of ufology. Somebody that doesn't get a lot of play, but I think is due. Her name is Carol. I'm sorry, Coral Lorenzen. So she was just a young girl of nine when she witnessed what she described as an open umbrella without the ribs or spurs fly silently across the summer skies of Barron, Wisconsin. Now she was nine years old, young girl, Northwoods of Wisconsin, not too far from that Rice Lake uh, where that abduction happened. And she had witnessed this along with one of her playmates. Now she went to report it and, you know, nothing was ever made of it because what are they going to say? And, you know, at that time when she saw this, she I think this was in the 1930s. Commercial flights in that area were not a thing. Even if a monoplane flew by, that was like a an occasion. Like everybody, oh, did you see the plane today? And she sees this thing that she calls an open umbrella without the ribs or spurs flying silently across the sky. So it was something very bizarre to a young girl, and it got her hooked at a young age. So in 1952... Uh, she was in her late 20s at the time. She saw another aerial phenomenon, and that was in Sturgeon Bay when she was looking out over Lake Michigan. Now, Sturgeon Bay is kind of north of Green Bay. It's between the peninsula of Door County and mainland Wisconsin. And she witnessed a metallic object with bright red glow, with a with a bright red glow emanating from the bottom of the craft just above the streets of Sturgeon Bay. So That same year she had the encounter, she decided to organize a aerial phenomenon research organization, and she called it APRO. And the organization was dedicated to the study of these phenomenons, the unidentified objects. So she used scientific scrutiny when she collected these cases and these eyewitnesses. It said specifically in a couple of the Um, articles I read that she aboard crackpots and cranks. So she was very much, I want to know just the facts. I don't want to hear about little green men. I don't want to hear about anything fantastical. I want to know what she said, you know, as cleanly and clearly as you can say it. So this is 1953. And you think up, it's right after World War II. It's the lead up to the Cold War. And they actually open a civilian observation tower in Sturgeon Bay, and she's a member of this civilian ground observation corps where her and a group of civilians, they take shifts at this lookout tower watching the skies and reporting what they see. And the main thing was they were worried about the Soviets. So they wanted to know what was going on in the skies over there. So there was a real military strategic purpose to the civilian corps. But Coral, she was kind of canny lady. She wanted to see UFOs. So that was kind of her 
smokescreen was, oh, yeah, we need to watch out for the Soviets. But she wanted to see what was actually happening in the skies above Sturgeon Bay. So APRO, it continued to grow. It added regional branches in many states across the country. And then in 1969, the Midwest UFO Network was formed. And they had thought that the Coral Lorenzen and her gym, who was in, I think he was in the Air Corps at the time, they moved out to the desert in Tucson and kind of abandoned the Midwest. So they said, well, you know, Coral, she's out in the desert, so we need to start our own thing. So the Midwest UFO Network became the Mutual UFO Network or MUFON, which we know today is kind of at the leading edge of the investigation of this phenomenon as far as on a civilian basis. So that was started by a guy named Alan Uki, who was a professor at Wisconsin State University, which is now the University of Milwaukee. So uh, lots of tie-ins from, you know, Coral Lorenzen. We got um, J. Allen Hynek, and now we got Alan Utke out of Milwaukee, starting all of these UFO networks to study the phenomenon all out in Wisconsin. Now, 1947. That is really fascinating, by the way. I just wanted to plug that in there that I had no idea that Wisconsin was so deeply connected, especially with MUFON. I mean, that is a huge deal. Yeah. Right now, MUFON, I mean, you know, whatever type of flack that they get and, mm-hmm. you know, from the, you know, from the community or whatever, I've used as a resource when looking into, uh, a lot of these stories and I've spoken with a fantastic author who is, you know, he works directly with MUFON. So to know that it came directly out of Wisconsin, mind blown, had no idea. Yeah, it's crazy. And, you know, we did a podcast on this for the Wisconsin Legends podcast. We did a two-parter on UFOs and doing the research on this and kind of digging in, digging deeper into this stuff. I was really surprised at how many things in popular mainstream ufology tied directly back to Wisconsin. So I just thought it was noteworthy to to mention that, yeah, everything kind of leads back to Wisconsin. I think it definitely, you know, the idea of a UFO conjures images of deserts, maybe because of Roswell. You know, you naturally, Mm -hmm. when you think of a UFO, you might think of it over like a desert sort of setting. I Uh, think of Art Bell doing his radio program at midnight in the desert looking over the skies and seeing stuff come in from area 51 and yeah, definitely Roswell. And then you think the deserts of like Arizona, South of um, Phoenix, you have like the superstition mountains. The point is not to bring up how cool deserts are is, you know, all of that happened. Sure. But you know, what was it? Roswell happened around this time, maybe a little bit after, but it didn't become, mainstream popular knowledge until the 70s so even though all this was happening in this era it was Mm -hmm. you know it was kind of like a small town club kind of thing so yeah that is really fascinating to hear that wisconsin state university had something to do with mufon i mean i wouldn't have expected that at all yeah it's crazy and then you mentioned roswell put a pin in that because we'll we'll actually get back to roswell and kind of the popularization of that and how wisconsin was involved in that as well so we'll fast forward a little bit to 1947 
This is kind of the advent of the Flying Saucer area. On June 24th, 1947, Kenneth Arnold, he was private pilot, he was flying his aircraft and he saw a string of nine shiny objects flying past Mount Rainier. Now, he was an experienced pilot and he had estimated that the speed of these objects was 1,200 miles per hour. Now, just to put that into context, it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't until four months later, October 14th, when Chuck Yeager broke the sound barrier at 670.84 miles per hour. That was the, the speed limit at the time, or the, the speed record, 1.05, which was almost half of the speed of 1,200 miles per hour. So we know that looking back, Chuck Yeager did that on a, it was a secret mission at the time. It wasn't publicized. So we know that was probably the maximum of the U.S. military's capabilities as far as speed goes was going hypersonic four months after June 24th, 1947, when Kenneth Arnold saw these crafts. So that's just to kind of put a finer point in it. What were these things? You know, it kind of beckons back to Mark's assertion about maybe this is breakaway civilization. Well, that leads right into the next topic. So after that sighting at Mount Rainier, Washington, just north of Seattle there, uh, Milwaukee native Ray Palmer reached out to Kenneth Arnold and bought that story. Hey, so Palmer, he was working as an editor for a kind of a pulp newsstand magazine called Amazing Story. He had worked at Amazing Stories for years, and then once he got a hold of the the Kenneth Arnold material and got bought his story and got him on record, he decided to start his own publication, and he called that Fate Magazine. So Volume 1, Issue 1 of Fate Magazine featured Arnold's story in full detail recounting his sightings. So the fact that Arnold's story was preserved and published was thanks to Milwaukee man Raymond Palmer. Now, before that sighting, Palmer had been writing about flying saucers and visitors from other worlds. So when he heard about Arnold's sighting, as well as sightings leading up to that kind of flying saucer area, he got excited. It was like the stories that he written, he was editing and he was publishing, were coming to life in his own reality. So for his involvement in this early flying saucer craze, including writing on UFO cover-ups, Men in Black, Palmer was offhandedly dubbed the man who invented flying saucers by none other than John Keel. So he was really the man at the forefront of the modern concept of UFO belief. Now, he eventually moved from Chicago to a small community called Amherst, Wisconsin. Now, unless you're from central Wisconsin, where I grew up, you don't know where Amherst is on a map. I actually grew up about 20 miles from Amherst. I worked within five miles of Amherst, and I worked with people from Amherst. But I did not know about Ray Palmer until a couple years ago when one of my friends decided to start making a documentary on the man. Now, you might not recognize... Ray, the name Ray Palmer, but you may recognize the Shaver Mysteries. Richard Sharp Shaver was an associate of Palmer's, and Ray Palmer is the reason that we know about Richard Sharp Shaver and mm. the Shaver, Shaver Mystery. 
So that kind of ties that together. And he wrote with Richard living in Amherst at the time, little town in Wisconsin, all about Richard Shaver and what he found in these caverns with the Lemurians and all of this kind of esoteric breakaway civilization knowledge. Now, I'm not sure how much of this Ray Palmer believed, but it was enough to sell magazines. And once he put um, Richard Shaver's stories on the covers, it really exploded. And that was when he was with Amazing Stories. But then later, he also worked with Palmer also worked with Shaver and also Kenneth Arnold on other projects. So they were kind of a a trio putting out uh, a lot of this material and kind of giving some shape and form to the flying saucer craze of this era. So just yet another kind of tie into Wisconsin flying saucers and ufology. I see Connecticut native Samuel Clemens, a.k.a. Mark Twain, and Haley's comment there on the cover. That kind of piqued my so interest. So I, I did not. I thought <laughs> Samuel Clemens was of Hannibal, Missouri. No, Mark Twain's from Connecticut. Is that right? Okay, because I thought he was a, a boy he, growing up on oh, the banks of the Mississippi. Well, that's the character, but I think he left okay. Connecticut and worked in Mississippi. Yeah. Okay. But All uh, right. but yeah, no, he's a Connecticut guy. He's got the Mark Twain house in the state capitol. Or in okay. The, yes. But, Interesting. Uh, yeah, I love this era of like pulp fiction and, you know, kind of blurred the lines between science fiction and uh, fact. And yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's something I, that... And I think the reason that Palmer might not get his due as far as modern day ufology is because he wrote a lot of fantastical stuff. And, you know, he was on the cutting edge of like the science fiction and and the fantasy stuff. And, you know, he was kind of in the kind of that crease, that fun crease between fiction and reality. So I think people were willing to dismiss him as just like a, a fantasy publisher or fantasy author, even though he really shaped a lot of the perception. Mm. So that's probably why we don't know about Ray Palmer. But yeah, my friend uh, Dean Bertram is doing a documentary. It should be out this coming year in 2024, all oh. about the Shaver mystery and Raymond Palmer. And the, the working title of that project is called The Man Who Invented Flying Saucer. So I can't wait to get a copy of that. And I'll get you in touch with him, Mark, once he gets that out. Because I yeah. think that would make for a fascinating discussion. And you're right about Twain. I stand corrected here. He was born in Missouri, moved to Connecticut. Okay. I guess Connecticut, you know, they love him so much. I just had this impression that he was always from Connecticut and just wrote all this stuff about, you know, places he'd traveled to. But no, he's from Missouri. You're right. Well, he, he straddles the line, you know, Connecticut adopted the Missouri son as their own. And, you know, they, they kept his house and... <laughs> So that's cool that he kind of straddles both lines. Yeah. So has anybody ever seen this picture before? No. No. What what do we got going on here? On Tuesday, April 18th, 1961, Joe Simonton, a plumber from Eagle River, Wisconsin, again, Wisconsin's North Woods, he may have entered into an intergalactic barter. 
Shortly before noon, a saucer-shaped craft described as silver, brighter than chrome, hovered just above ground level at his property. An occupant, small in stature, disembarked. He was dressed in a black two-piece suit. The occupant motioned to Simonton by holding up a jug, indicating that he desired it to be filled with water. After filling the jug and returning to the ship, a different occupant handed him three cakes, described as quarter-inch thick and three or four inches in diameter. Were they space pancakes? The cakes were sent to the National Committee for the Investigation of Aerial Phenomenon in Washington, Washington, D.C. According to a later account, the committee was returning the pancakes without analysis. So after receiving countless media requests, as well as written letters, the plumber quipped, if it happened again, I don't think I'd tell anyone about it. Now, Simonton's encounter piqued the interest of Project Blue Book and consultant J. Allen Hynek came up to the Northwoods to investigate the pancakes, and he actually got a sample of one and tested it. It was a normal wheat germ pancake, nothing too supernatural or extraterrestrial about it, but it was a curious thing that happened in the Northwoods. Now, later, Heineck actually sat down and had a conversation with Jacques Vallée, of all people, and a friend kind of mediated the conversation and recorded it. And he talked about Joe Simonton, and he thought that he was a sole witness, so credibility was in question. But when Heineck went up there to investigate Simonton, he had thought that he was telling the truth about what happened. Now, he ascribed it the Magonia syndrome, where these things, this phenomenon, appear to people and they are similar to uh, what somebody can relate to. Like, I think they, a lot of times they call them screen memories. It's something that people can conceptualize, but it's still kind of a step out of the ordinary. So he thought that what Simonton encountered on his property in Eagle River doing this exchange of these pancakes was something that was real. And he also alluded to that a lot of time in the fairy lore, um, these little goblins or trolls or whatever would give people these little cakes, these little wafer cakes. And that kind of looks like what Joe Simonton is holding in his hand in that photograph. So it's a, it's an interesting story. He got mostly ridicule. He didn't get fame or fortune for this. And like he said, if it happened again, he doesn't think he'd tell anybody. So I think that kind of led some credibility to something happened on his farm this morning or, or that morning. And what it was, it's really hard to say. Wow. That's really fascinating. Uh, pancakes, like just of all things, they're, yeah. they're wheat germ pancakes and they're yeah. burnt. That looks burnt. It was burnt like a crisp. And, and he actually uh, said he tried it and it tasted very bland. <laughs> Maybe it's maybe that's why they go and make these crop circles. That's how they harvest their grain from the crop circles, and then they create little pancakes. Yeah, and then they abduct cows, and then they got the dairy so they can have the buttermilk, and they got the weed so they can make pancakes to hand to unsuspecting plumbers in the north of woods of Wisconsin. 
Yeah. Seems like plausible to me. It's all adding up. Now, this photo <laughs> kind of looks like AI art to me. It's not a re- purported to be a real photo of the event. No. So this is the the foreground image is of Simonton. This is right. a historical picture of him holding the pancake overlaid on an AR generated art. Okay. Of, okay. Cool. Well, yeah, now I yeah. get why you asked us if we had seen the photo before. Because at first I was like, "No, is this a movie or something?" I'm sorry. I meant the <laughs> it's all right. the photo fo- the photo in the foreground right. of him holding the the pancake from outer space. Great slide, by the way. This is a thanks. <laughs> I stole this one from, I believe I was on a Reddit thread, so I can't take full credit for it, but I thought it was compelling enough to drop into this presentation. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. So just real quick on this pancake, just back to the beginning, he had helped them out with water and mm-hmm. in turn for the water, he got gifted just one of these pancakes, three, it was three pancakes. And they all three got tested or was it just the one that got tested? I believe, I believe they took one for testing. Okay. Wow. Yeah. That's so funny. And yeah. And I found on, I found a whole packet on this and they actually had like the spectrographic analysis of the pancakes and it was just normal wheat germ pancake. I heard other stories saying that, oh, it didn't contain salt, which was weird because everything on earth contains salt, but I couldn't corroborate that uh, it didn't seem like there was anything out of the ordinary about the specific contents of this and then you know the guy that was mediating the conversation between Heineck and Jacques Vallée said you know I w- I'm curious like did they test it against like a sample of like Aunt Jemima pancake mix and they said well they didn't get that in depth they just determined it was normal wheat germ that you would find you know on any specific pancake or flour mix so there wasn't anything too out of the ordinary. So it didn't let it lend any credence to it, but then it also didn't detract from it. So it was, it was kind of indeterminate. But an, an interesting story, and to hear Jalen Hynek, kind of this skeptic or debunker, say that he thought that Simonton was telling the truth and that he was a credible witness to this was quite compelling. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc so now we'll get into the actual man that we've been talking about this whole time j allen hynek we talked about him working at yerkes observatory earning his phd we covered his esoteric inclinations when it comes to Steiner, Hall, Heindel, and then the revelations, they hardly match up to this hard-nosed researcher and debunker that we picture as kind of the 
the forward face of Project Blue Book. So he had operated as a consultant from 1952 to 69 in the Air Force's Project Blue Book. He also participated in two previous programs called Project Sign and Project Grudge. And those were also kind of aerial phenomenon or UFO research committees. So his involvement in uh, Project Blue Book cast that narrative that he was this ardent skeptic and chief debunker. In fact, he was the progenitor of the swamp gas hypothesis. He shilled that thing to no end. And I think that was on the insistence of the U.S. Air Force to say, you know, we can explain these sightings as swamp gas being combusted in the atmosphere, and that's what these people are seeing. But that really doesn't hold account to a lot of the sightings that happened around that time. Now, we're going to talk about a specific flap that happened, I believe, in 1966. It started in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which migrated westward into Wisconsin. Now, during this flap, one traffic officer from Monroe County even followed an aerial object for 70 miles, eventually losing sight of it. And I'm not sure how swamp gas can travel 70 miles, but that was the hand-waving explanation provided by Heineck and company. Now, critics, they dubbed Project Blue Book as the Society for the Explanation of the Uninvestigated. They pretty much concluded that it was their way of either either covering up military technology, off-planet technology, extraterrestrial technology, or redirecting serious inquiries into intellectual cul-de-sacs. So that was kind of the critical analysis of Blue Book. And I think Heineck, he likely traded the role of being a debunker in the hopes of actually gaining the knowledge about what was happening in the skies above. So I think he was happy to take on that role. I can debunk it, but then I also get a front row seat to a lot of this information. And now we talked about his esoteric leanings. That's certainly something that you know, that points to him carrying a set of both public facing opinions that he aired out through Project Blue Book. And then there was kind of the secret way that he really felt about these phenomenons. And uh, a lot of accounts say that, you know, he's he, when he first started this in, you know, the early 50s, that he was skeptical of everything. And then by the end of that term with Blue Book, there was enough leftover evidence where he was more of a believer in the phenomenon. So I found that interesting. And then after Blue Book shuttered, and some people believe that it didn't close officially, it just went away and then went into a more secret department within the Air Force. So they didn't really let um, the prying eyes of academia or citizen scientists really look into the aerial phenomenon. They wanted to keep it specifically to the ranks of the military. So after he left Blue Book, once it shuttered, he founded the Center for UFO Studies. Now, I've heard this acronym, CUFOs, pronounced two ways. I've heard it pronounced CUFOs and CUFOs, and if I switch between the two, I apologize. But he founded it in 1973. This was a few years after Project Blue Book shuttered. Now, this was a serious scientific investigation into the study of UFOs. It was based in Chicago, near Northwestern, where he was a professor, and it had multiple chapters around, including one in Milwaukee. Now, KUFOS, it had two 
principal activities. First, it was to maintain a library and archive of UFO-related materials. And then secondly, it was to compile and analyze reports of UFOs. Now, KUFOs is still in operation. They have a pretty extensive website. A lot of the Simonton stuff I pulled off of uh, KUFOs.org. So it's worth um, checking out, digging around in there, because they really um, pulled up to that first principle of maintaining a library and archive a lot of this material and compiling it into like downloadable PDF format. So anybody can take a look at it and, and learn more about UFO history. So I, I thought that was an interesting kind of transition for him from the, the uh, U S air force into more of a private open source organization. So I, I have to commend him for that, for at least uh, getting this off the ground and still going to this day. It definitely seems like, you know, the UFO community has some shadier elements. I'll admit, I don't know much about J. Allen Hynek, but points for yeah, leaving the government sector, you know, to pursue this research in, a, in an independent way, right? Because it seems like even in the independent sectors, there's some weirdness going on with the UFO community. Yeah, and it's so hard today looking at any of this stuff and applying any scrutiny to it because you're like, oh, who is just a, a bullshitter trying to sell books and who's an actual serious investigator? I feel like, you know, Heineck, when he worked as the role for Blue Book, he was that debunker. He was that face, that the forward-facing guy to say, you know, hand waving like, oh, this is nothing. This is swamp gas. This is ball lightning or some other kind of atmospheric phenomenon. Oh, you just saw Venus or could have been a meteorite or whatever to still having a thirst for this and getting into more of the, the private sector of compiling this stuff. And I think they've done, at least the people that run it now, a pretty sound job of trying to separate the wheat from the chaff and be more of a scientific other than, you know, the other thing that we talk about on the program is on the podcast is the stuff coming out of California about getting in touch, channeling space brothers and aliens coming down from, from other planets and giving material and taking pictures and trying to sell them and stuff. Some of the Georgia Damsky stuff that is a lot more questionable where it seems to be more on the straight and narrow as far as a legitimate scientific study of the phenomenon. So Wisconsin has three self-styled UFO capitals. It has Elmwood, Belleville, and Long Lake. So I'll start out with Elmwood because I think it is the most compelling. Now, Elmwood is considered the UFO capital of Wisconsin and the, the flying saucer capital of the world. Although today it's kind of celebrated for fun, kind of in jest and kind of in mocking, there was one encounter that happened in this small Northwoods town that left a police officer very shaken. Now, this was April 22nd, 1976. Police officer George Wheeler, a 30-year law enforcement veteran, came upon a flaming orange object. He said it was about 250 feet across and large as a two-story building. It was hovering above the ground, and he said he could see shadowy figures inside. 
During the observation of this aerial phenomenon, Wheeler's radio went dead and he was found in his police car later that evening. The car's spark plugs and its ignition points were burnt out and nearby residents even reported that their television sets went off for about 10 minutes about that same time that Wheeler had the encounter. Now, Wheeler said he had been struck by a bluish-white light which came from the craft. He developed severe headaches several days later and was hospitalized for further testing. Now, his chief, by the name of Gene Helmer, said that he had never seen Wheeler as shaken as he was that night of the sighting. George saw something, all right, or he would never have shut off his squad car's engine nor kept the lights off except under extreme circumstances. He wasn't the only person to see a UFO that night, an administrator for a nursing home also witnessed the sighting that happened late at night. So here we have physical evidence, again, of some kind of encounter with something otherworldly or of other high technology. Now, when I hear about that, how it struck the car, and I guess it killed the engine, it burnt out the ignition points and the spark plugs, pretty much burnt up the electrical system, it sounds like some kind of either EMP or some kind of energy weapon that struck his car and it left him incapacitated and resulted in headaches. So it seems like there was something serious that happened to George Wheeler on that night, but that wasn't his only encounter. It was reported that just a year earlier on April 7th of 75, he saw another object like the previous one or the one that we talked about previously. So this was the initial encounter that I'm talking about now. It was also a flaming orange. It was about the size of a football field. And Wheeler said that he saw it and it looked like there was a hose dangling from underneath the craft. Now, he surmised that it may have been some kind of charging port or some kind of charging mechanism because he saw it near a 69,000 volt power line. So after that second encounter that we talked about where he was struck, Wheeler concluded whatever it was, they were out to kill us. So he thought they had malintent. And I I see how he could have gathered that, considering what happened to him in that patrol car that night. Now, despite the mortal danger that was inflicted to George Wheeler by these objects, Elmwood still holds a UFO days for a full weekend every July because Wisconsinites like to party. So if it's over a UFO encounter from 1976, they'll tie one on and have a great time. So that's kind of of the culture, but I was surprised to find such a compelling event happened to Mm. spawn on these UFO days that they celebrate every year. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I didn't realize that there was such a hotbed right there in the the heart of America, at least the northern half, you know, and... You know, we've talked about Wisconsin when you were on the show before. We talked a little bit about this, but mostly we, we mentioned the paranormal, political, conspiratorial, historical aspects of Wisconsin. And, and when Chad was on the show as a guest, he discussed many anomalies going on in Michigan, but, you know, there's no skirting around the fact that the Great Lakes are a big part of what 
makes Wisconsin, Michigan, right? I mean, the, mm-hmm. the Great Lakes are a huge part of the economies of both states, you know, the international trade that goes on through those ports. So, I mean, it's probably, uh, I mean, again, we don't want to make any conclusions, but my mind goes to the lake, and I wonder if these are, you know, again, not flying objects from outer space but maybe deep underground bases that have you know entrances underneath the water and these lakes you know do do any of your reports i mean there were the flying ships by um i forget if it was over it wasn't over the great lakes but it was over a smaller lake but yeah that one in rice lake yeah so that was a uh it's a small northwoods lake but Chicago, right there on the tip of Lake Michigan. Milwaukee is also right next to Lake Michigan. And then they said they saw them in Green Bay, which is Lake Michigan as well. And that actually segues into the next UFO capital, which is right near the shores of Lake Michigan. It's on a small lake called Long Lake, which is a little more inland lake, but uh, not far from what we call the Michigan Triangle, which um, I know the connection point is in Manitowoc, on the Wisconsin side, I don't know my geography of Michigan well enough to tell you where the two points in Michigan where they meet, but there is this area of Lake Michigan, now that you mention it, Mark, that has been a hotbed of paranormal activity. It has a ton of sunken ship over the years and then mm. UFO sightings and then also downed aircraft as well right there on Lake Michigan. So, yeah, it's a huge freshwater lake. It's responsible for so much industry and commerce with the shipping and connecting it. Like you said, you know, Michigan and Wisconsin, they can be defined, you know, literally and figuratively by their Great Lakes because Michigan is a peninsula and it's surrounded by um, Great Lakes on all sides. And Wisconsin, you know, the major coastline of the eastern side is all Lake Michigan And then parts of it, there's parts to Superior, although a lot of that's obscured by Upper Michigan, which is on Lake Michigan, but uh, all part of that. And one interesting UFO sighting that we covered, I believe, in Esoteric America, and I think Chad has also touched on it, was the Kinross incident Mm -hmm. in Sault Ste. Marie that um, resulted in the um, missing aircraft that was marshaled out of Madison's Air Force Base and stationed in Sault Ste. Marie to protect the border there with Canada. And if you actually look at the pilot's um, memorial marker, they never found the plane. It said down by UFO. So kind of another tie-in, kind of that Michigan-Wisconsin UFO connection right there on the Great Lakes, on a Great Lakes port in Sault Ste. Marie. So to tie it all together, yeah, that's definitely it. And then Uh, To get back to this specific one on Long Lake, Bill Benson, he was the late owner of a little place called Benson's Hideaway. You see it there. Bill Benson, Wisconsin legend, 1942 to his death date in 2021. So he's been gone a couple of years now. But he ran, yeah, he ran this bar and restaurant, which was situated on the end, the edge of Long Lake, uh, which has been contended to be an area of high strangeness. Now, in 1985, multiple witnesses came forward after seeing a circular object hovering above a farm field, startling a herd of cows. You know how flying saucers love dairy cows. 
We got lots of cows in Wisconsin, so maybe that's why we got a lot of UFOs. So after that incident garnered attention, Benson and his buddy Bob Keen, a.k.a. UFO Bob, decided to start their first ever UFO days, D-A-Z-E. But the activity didn't end there. In 1995, a crop circle was discovered near Long Lake. In 1998, Benson, along with five others, witnessed a large orange ball hovering over Dundee Mountain. As they observed the orb, four fighter jets were scrambled after the aerial apparition. Now, many UFO enthusiasts contend that Dundee Mountain, the small mountain just on the north side of Long Lake, is home to a secret UFO base. Now, that sounds like some kind of crank um, assertions there, but what you said, Mark, maybe could be. But Long Lake, it's not just home to that aerial phenomenon. Benson also reported that two campers in 1989 were out on that lake when a giant black and yellow creature emerged from the water. It was approximated at 25 feet long with a head like a football. The creature was given the nickname Long Neck of Long Lake. So Uh there's a plesiosaur in there too. Maybe it's transpermia from the aliens. Maybe it's something that's left over from the Ice Ages. I don't know. But over the years, many reports have trickled in of an eerie snake-like creature roaming Long Lake and breaking the placid waters. So now you got UFOs, you got alien bases, and you got cryptids right in that area. Boom. So the UFO Days Festival, it ran for 33 years until Bill's passing in 21, where the final UFO Days was held in 22. And that was an unofficial event that was more of a celebration of life for the departed Benson. So that is the Long Lake UFO capital. Wow. So this long neck creature living in long lake mm-hmm. um how long was it before this creature was sighted or when was this sighted again i'm sorry if this I was no no problem it was first reported by two campers in 1989 that was the first official report that i found of it and then it had been seen since then and they said it was about 25 feet long with a head shaped like a football and and when was this it was this uh lake named before or after the sighting this would the the lake was named before it, so it was Long okay. Lake for for a while, and then when this thing emerged, they're like, "Well, it had a long neck, and it's in Long Lake. What's called Long Neck of Long Lake." Uh, are there any um, indigenous stories of this area that you know of or that you're aware of? Not specifically that area to lake monsters. If you go further west to the Devil's Lake, Wisconsin, there's been a sighting of a plesiosaur. And now to think of it, just north of there is Lake Winnebago. And that is home to its own sea creature. Surprisingly enough, I don't know of a lot of sea creature sightings in Lake Michigan, which would seem like that would be fertile ground for them. But mostly it's inland lakes that I've found most of these reports. Now, are these... What is a plesiosaur? Plesiosaur is the... I guess... It is a dinosaur with a long neck and like flippers. Think and a long, the Loch Ness, long tail. Like, monster. Loch Ness monster is considered a plesiosaur. Oh, okay, that's right. now. Let me ask you this, Jeff: Are these lakes where these creatures are sighted? Are boats allowed on these lakes, or are these re- reservoir type lakes that are protected from that kind of activity? Like, what's the regulations with these lakes? 
So this specific lake is open to motorboating and Bill Benson actually had a boat landing on there where a lot of people put in their boats. So mm. the restaurant is shuttered, but you can still use their, their loading wrap for yeah. loading and unloading your boat. Is that so yeah. Yeah. I wonder how oh, much that plays into these kind of, you know, environments. Maybe these creatures would, you know, be less likely to survive in a place that was being, you know, exposed to that much activity. I'm not to say that motorboats are necessarily, you know, polluting, but they are spitting gas Dis- and oil. Disrupting. And, yeah, and, yeah. They're, they're disrupting. And, you know, there's certain types of boats that like dredge up the bottoms of the, you know, lake beds. Yeah. And so it's, I mean... I'm not against boating, but it is something. It's a you know, it's something that I would imagine. Oh, Mark, you're against boating. <laughs> I'm just saying. I never you know, knew I that. I don't want to piss any boaters off, but I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sure that lakes that don't have boaters on it are more pristine and have more animals, more wildlife. Just as a, a rule of thumb, I think that's safe to say. Yeah, I, I think that's safe to say. And there are like Devil's Lake, where the other sighting is that is a no wake lake so you might be able to have like a small like trolling motor but most everything is like paddleboard canoe and there's a lot of long held stories of a sea creature in that specific lake too so um, as far as long lake note goes i don't think there's any regulations as far as as motor boating but mercury marine is actually out of wisconsin and Evernube was invented in wisconsin as well the first um, commercially available Boat motor, so I take uh, deep offense to that, Mark. Wow, as a Wisconsinite, Damn, Wisconsin is just <laughs> loaded hey, with some stuff. What I grew up general going on my uncle's boat. I love boating. I, I know. I'm just giving you a hard time. <laughs> uh, that's funny. What are the general dimensions of the lakes? Are they pretty deep? Are they? I, you know, I didn't really look into Long Lake as far as the acreage or depth of it, but from everything that I've read, it's not that big of a lake. Winnebago is just north of it, and that is the largest inland lake in Wisconsin, and it has its own legend. And then there's also another sea monster legend in kind of a back channel of the Mississippi River on the west side of the state, which is called Peppy. It's Lake Pepin. They call it the Lake Pepin Monster, or Peppy for short, kind of like Nessie. So, yeah, looking at Wikipedia quick here, it looks like it is, well, okay, that's actually the town. Anyways, I'll move on, but yeah, I don't yeah, think yeah. So I like to is, ask questions sometimes. So that's a, that's, it's, it's a good question <laughs> because it's My like, is it, big, it. is it big enough to, you know, habitate life of something like this? Probably not, but that doesn't discount that, you know, maybe there's a supernatural aspect to. Or it could just, yeah, I mean, like the lakes themselves could be, you know, holding just the key or one one part of the of the doorway you know if these are interdimensional creatures they not necessarily maybe even living in the lake all the time anytime it's just one it, it manifests within in the waters yeah. yeah yeah you know if you scry at the right time on these lakes you will thus uh, you'll be able to peer them. into another dimension and yeah if you want to check out a great story look up the Wisconsin Legends podcast on the legend of Devil's Lake and some of the Crowleyan sex magic rituals that happened within that lake that they think resulted in a sea monster type creature in there, kind of a Cthulhu type monster 
mm-hmm. lurking devil's lake. So I'll tease that. You'll have to listen to that episode to learn more Wonderful. about that. All right. So we'll get to the last of the UFO capital. And then I only have a couple more slides for you guys tonight. So in 1987, a Belleville police officer, along with the Dane County Sheriff deputy. So Dane County is the county that Madison is. Belleville is like a small bedroom community, just, I believe, southwest of Madison. Well, they witnessed lights in the sky along the town's south sky. Now, Glenn Casmer, a Belleville PD officer, was on night patrol when he witnessed a cluster of unmoving lights in the sky. Now, Casmer, he picked up his partner, Jeff Jeff Furseth, and drove to a bluff southwest of town. What they saw, what they said they saw there a mile or two south and a thousand feet or so up were flashing red, blue and white lights arranged horizontally. The cluster was motionless and the lights were intense, more like spotlights than aircraft or running lights. Kasmer said there was no sound and it was too dark to discern a shape. Now, they were later joined by other law enforcement officers. Eventually, the lights moved southwest, picked up speed, and then disappeared. So it wasn't like a planetary body that they saw. It wasn't like a cluster of stars. It actually started moving and then eventually disappeared. The reports attracted national attention from the incident. And then the report was the first of many for the Belleville, New Glarus area. And of course, the weirdness is commemorated every year with an annual parade. And that's usually held around Halloween. And like I said, it's very Wisconsin to take any occasion, any event, whether it was bratwurst or UFO sightings or a specific brewery and have a festival and hold a kegger. So it's no different with these UFO days. Each one kind of has a party involved in it. And it's just kind of fun to celebrate the weirder aspects of our history or kind of counter history. So that is it for the Wisconsin UFO capitals. Now I teased you earlier that we were going to get to Roswell. Yes. And how it tied into Wisconsin. Well, and before we get there, I do want to just say something just came to me. Wisconsin is known as the Badger state, but it's other Mm -hmm. nickname is America's Dairyland, and I just as that hit me, I'm like, oh wow, of course. What do UFOs always get associated with? Cattle mutilations. So of yep. course, the state with all these dairy cows is going to have UFOs going on, and you know, if that's something that they're interested in, yeah, that would be their, you know, ab- land of abundance, that their land yep. of milk and and dairy. <laughs> yeah, and that's funny because in that last Long Lake story, they talked about the UFOs scaring a herd of cattle cattle mutilations surprisingly i don't have a lot of reports of which is interesting considering the abundance of dairy cattle in the state so that's well and it's in it go ahead i wonder if maybe they're not interested in dairy cows because it does as you said that it does seem like a lot of the cattle mutilation reports come out of places beef cattle where they have beef cattle yeah mm-hmm. exactly yeah yeah. So I was looking up earlier because unlike Mark, I had that thought in the beginning of the podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just playing. I'm just playing. But I was curious. I was like, oh, yeah, no, of course. Wisconsin's got all these this cow or the cheese situation stuff going on. And I was surprised to see that it's ninth in the country for population of cows 
Texas being number one, but when it comes to dairy cows, they are right behind California, which anybody's ever driven right down the I-5. They're doing that. They're some crazy tax right up. Really fascinating. The cows. I don't know what I'm saying anymore. Cows are amazing. You guys are amazing. Please continue with your wonderful slides and your great presentation, Joe. We loved what you're saying. You just lagged so hard. It sounded like you got slowed down. Your time. I thought maybe you were abducted by yeah. a, a space alien. I may be slow, but your connection is lagging, dude. Yeah. <laughs> oh. But we were able to understand it. And yes, yes we heard you. Uh, Considering the landmass, Wisconsin does have a lot of cows. Maybe not as many as California and Texas, but we're up there as far as dairy production goes. But to round it out, the 1990s, they were primed for UFOs. In 1993, the iconic hit TV series, The X-Files, premiered. Shortly thereafter, a Showtime film debuted titled Roswell. It was based on Wisconsin investigator Don Schmidt's book, The Truth About UFO Crash at The Truth About the UFO Crash at Roswell. Now, in 1986, Schmidt went to New Mexico to investigate the now famous supposed flying saucer crash at Roswell that happened in 1947. Now, Don, he was confident that he would just spend a weekend there, debunk it, and leave. Now, Schmidt, he was shocked to learn about what he found. Now, it he was able to compile 500 fitness excuse me 550 witness testimonials and from people seeing everything from the actual debris or wreckage on Mac Brazos field to some actually witnessing the dead alien bodies now he wrote that up in the book the truth about the crash at Roswell and that was then spun off into this movie that premiered on Showtime called Roswell. Now, so it may have been Stan Friedman in the 60s who went out to Roswell and wrote kind of the comprehensive report on the Roswell crash when it was still fresh in people's minds. But the person responsible for maybe bringing Roswell to the zeitgeist in popular culture was Don Schmidt with his book Mm. about the UFO crash and Don Schmidt. He actually worked with the esteemed Dr. Hynek at Kufos. And he actually had a separate branch in Milwaukee where he worked kind of perpetuated that field of investigation. So just one more tie in to Wisconsin with UFOs. And then finally, we get to the modern day. So everybody saw it over the summer, July 26, 2023. The House Oversight and Accountability Subcommittee hearing on UFOs was held on Capitol Hill. This was the famous testimony of David Grush. So what does this have to do with Wisconsin? Well, the committee was chaired by U.S. Representative Glenn Grothman, Republican congressman from Wisconsin. So it said in some reports after the hearings that he found Grush less credible than some of the other witnesses 
that were called into question over the incident, but he had called for a little more transparency from the military when it came to historical UFO crashes. And then he also supported a bipartisan amendment to the defense budget, which would require declassification of military documents on UAPs no later than 25 years. Grothman went on uh, record to say he thought maybe 15 years would be a more likely target as far as releasing this information. Although this may be appreciated by people like me that like to revel in the ufology and, and the lore, but it's likely that most of the research and development and anything that's been recovered or created from any of this alien technology, otherworldly technology, or stuff that we can't quite place it as genuine you know, American ingenuity is kind of siphoned up and cordoned off to private sectors to circumvent those pesky FOIA requests. So although he wants more oversight of this, like government departments always do, the the reality of actually getting that, I feel, is is pretty flimsy at best. But it was interesting to see that even in the modern times, in ufology, Wisconsin is still playing a role with Grothman being the chair of that committee. What's the name of this committee? It was called the House Oversight and Accountability Subcommittee Hearing on UFOs. Wow. And that was that was <laughs> chaired by so I knew this guy's smile. Well, so the funny thing is about this character here. David Grush, I know he just was on Rogan last week or a couple weeks ago, and I haven't had a chance to watch the episode yet, but when I went for a Google image search of him, they made him look as crazy as possible, which makes me think, okay, maybe this guy is credible after all, if they have to paint him in this crazy light, just to kind of deflect. So it's interesting. I'm not sure where I come down on him. I don't know if these are two warring factions of government kind of going back and forth over technology and disclosure that maybe David Grush is playing for one segment of the team. And then there's another segment of the team that's trying to obscure what they actually know. I'm not sure where I come down on this. I know I listened to the two gentlemen standing right behind him, uh, George Knapp and Jeremy Corbell. Um, I don't know if you can see them sitting, sitting, uh, Jeremy's got the, uh, the green shirt and George has the black suit with the red tie. They were on Rogan talking about this and they made a compelling case for this Grush character. So I'm not really sure what to make about all of these modern UFO revelations, but it's intriguing nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, undoubtedly. And just to back up what you're saying, you know, a lot of characters I've looked into in research, when you when you find them being, you know, places disheveled or having only just crazy photos of them online or available to find, it's because there is a specific, a lot of times, a specific narrative being painted about them. And 
And yeah, like <laughs> you can't find just like a normal, just smiling photo. This, I can't get over this. I've zoomed in on this guy's face like seven times right here in the middle. Just, just and, drop David Grush, G-R-U-S-C-H into a Google image search and you'll see all of the rubber face photos of him. And it feels like an attempt to discredit him as a, a kooky crank or a crackpot. But if you listen to him, it's like a lot of the stuff he's saying is plausible. I don't know if it's dis- disinformation, misinformation. I'm not sure what to make of him, t- to be quite honest with you, but it's intriguing. <laughs> yeah. So one more thing. Oh, sorry. Go yeah. Ahead. No, yeah. You, you go right ahead. I would say on that slide you had just before this with the Roswell TV movie. I'd never heard of that or, or seen that. I'm going to watch it because uh-huh. I love Kyle McLaughlin because, you know, Twin Peaks, Twin Peaks yep. he was one of David Lynch's like favorite actors. He was in Blue Velvet. He was in all the Twin Peaks. He was in almost every single David Lynch movie besides the Eraserhead. And so I'm like, oh, with Martin Sheen, I was like, ah, yeah, I could yeah, waste there was- some time watching this movie. There was a lot of big names in this. I looked at the IMDb here, and who was the map? I got it right up here. Let me grab it. If I can get back to it. Yeah. This is in prime time, too, just four years after Twin Peaks was aired. Yeah, so Kyle McLaughlin played Jesse Marcel. He was the, the guy that recovered the wreckage and showed it to his son. Martin Sheen played Townsend. I'm not sure who how he played in. Dwight Yoakam played Mac Brazel. So I was like, all right, maybe that was his first. I'm not sure if 94 was his uh, kind of debut. I know he did Friday Night Lights and he did a couple other parts. Sling Blade, but Dwight Yoakam is kind of a compelling character. But uh, yeah, it's worth taking a look at. I'm not sure how it holds up 30 years on, but it's interesting how that was spun off into kind of the, the popular zeitgeist of the era. So there you have it from airship sighting, citizen research to the father of u- ufology to space pancakes, lake monsters, Roswell, modern UAP hearings. Wisconsin has been the forefront I when it comes it. to ufology. That's awesome, man. Yeah. Thank you for putting this together now. Great presentation. Brother. Yeah. I want to, I want to add a little bit of the native perspective. I don't remember, and please remind me if we did, talk about the Native Americans when you first joined us on Esoteric America, but the Winnebago tribe is on the sort of eastern half of Wisconsin, at least going back before the settlers moved in. And Mm -hmm. one of their legends, and again, if we already talked about this, forgive me, uh, but Menomini. Menomini, yep. Yeah, Menomini has this really interesting vision um, at Lake Michigan, which they called the Bad Lake for some Mm. reason. And that's kind of interesting. But he said that... um, The chief commanded that all manner of supplies be assembled at a white sand beach on Lake Michigan. And when all this had been done and set in order, as the sun reached its zenith, the vision came to life. In the pure blue sky of the eastern horizon, a single dark cloud began to form and move irresistibly towards them. It was a great flock of ravens, spirit birds with rainbow plumage of iridescent colors. The instant that the first of these landed... He materialized into a naked, kneeling man. 
The Menominee chief said to his people, Give this man clothing, for he is a chief. And the others landed in like fashion and were given great hospitality. They were the Hokok nation, and that is how they came to the Red Banks. So <laughs> here we go, wow. right at the beginning. Okay, you no, know, we did not cover this, Mark. And this is. Isn't that awesome? Like, this yeah, is that like is great. a, a oh, UFO spell? visitation going on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you spell the, uh, the last word you said? A. H O. Oh, it's the so the ho chunk or ho chunk. Okay, yeah. that's what I thought. It's like a hotchkuk or something. I'm not sure yeah, how to pronounce yeah. it in their actual tongue, but yeah, they are known as the ho chunk Indians now, right. and they are the Indians that are native to but the Madison you, area, and they believe them to be the ancestral lineage or descendants of the um, the mound builders. Okay, wow. See that's incredible, but, but that but that's but I've never heard that that myth about them being created from a flock of did you say ravens or well, blackbirds? It or? seems like they they flew in from the sky and appeared to be ravens, and when they landed, they materialized into men um, mm-hmm. or men and women. It says, and that's how they came to the Red Bank. So, I mean, when I think of a raven, especially the coloration, I mean, it kind of reminds me of what people describe ufos looking like where you have like this iridescence almost like an oil slick or like a a cd rom right when you look at it when the light's reflecting on it you see this prismatic iridium yep so i wonder you know maybe raven or spirit bird became you know a sort of translation over time for something that initially meant you know just something that flew and looked you know or ha- had similar qualities. It was their contextualization of yeah. uh, technology that they didn't understand. Well, that's, yeah, that's one way of putting it. Or they just, you know, over time, like the similarity of descriptive words blended together, uh, okay. you know, like so, these things. So, that, like, okay. Yeah. That, so they had no other way to well, pass down, bound it than by using something of the natural world. Or just like the qualities that are associated with a raven were also associated with this okay. and over time right. because of their natural like language that like those sorts of organic terms were preferred and became like a because that's one thing and it doesn't so this isn't true for every native language but from what i've been learning about native languages there's a lot of words that mean multiple things within context so mm-hmm. out of context you may think that they're just talking about a raven but within the story there may be other words that indicate that it's actually just one aspect of what it means to be a raven not the physical bird itself they're using raven as a descriptive kind of word in that context so again i like you know not to take anything away from the mythology maybe raven isn't meant to be any of what i just described and it's meant to be sincerely a raven as a literal yeah but you know I, i think this paired with what you just presented is really incredible i'm glad that i decide you know just kind of came to me to look at the the map here of wisconsin tribes and then when i looked up winnebago this ho-chunk mythology came up and there's more here too but the thunderbird is also mentioned redhorn maybe is somebody who we talked about because that does sound i believe familiar. chad has talked about this giant redhorn i think he okay yeah, maybe you covered that, but I'd familiar. not heard that that origin myth of the, the Ho Chunk or the Ho Chunk people, or yeah, they were formerly called the Winnebago people. 
Cool. Wow. Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad you shared that with me because I'm always excited to learn something new about the, the natives of the land that I live in now. No doubt. Yeah, no. And that's a big part of this show. You know, Esoteric America includes, you know, everything that's happened on this land and, you know, not in a corny social justice warrior kind of way. I'm all about acknowledging the Native Americans and acknowledging that this is their land. And, and yeah, that, I think that's a big part of this show is is trying to connect all of the different nodal points that make up this very complex story that is American history. And so much of it is esoteric. And that's why, you know, having a, a guest like yourself at our disposal is so awesome because, you know, let's be honest, I can't go all the way out to Wisconsin right now. I do plan on it. You know, that's something that makes this show so cool is now we're connecting with people all across the state and all across the country for when we do branch out and, and do a little, you know, road trip. Yeah. But, but yeah, you know, we can't do it alone. And it's awesome to have you on the show, Jeff. So yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, enjoyed, you know, diving deeper in this and then uncovering a few things I didn't know about my state or the field of ufology, namely, you know, some of Heineck's esoteric background, that specific near abduction along that, that starship in 1897. So I appreciate the challenge and being able to learn more about this. So if you want to learn more about the Wisconsin's history of UFOs, we did a, a two hour, it's broken up into two one hour episodes of the Wisconsin Legends podcast. The uh, second episode just dropped last week. So that's ready for your viewing pleasure. Right on. Right yep, and you can find me Instagram at Badgerland Legends or all the socials or else if you're on Facebook, go to the Wisconsin Legends group on Facebook and ask for an invite. Right on. Yeah. Check it out. Definitely right. go and support Jeff. Check out Wisconsin Legends. Even if you don't live in Wisconsin, it's a great podcast to listen to. Maybe you're going to travel to Wisconsin one day. It's a great start. You know, I think, again, going back to why I love doing this show so much and why we're going to continue doing it, even though we haven't been putting out regular episodes, is because it's so exciting to have, like, a travel guide based around this sort of thing. Like, before this episode, I wouldn't have known that Wisconsin is a potential UFO hotspot. And I should have asked you, maybe it's too late, to ask, but I wonder if there's like a pattern to when these UFOs appear. Like, are they, you know, more often sighted in the summertime, more often sighted in the wintertime? Again, I'm thinking like a tourist, like when can I go to Wisconsin to see the, what's the best time of year to see UFOs in Wisconsin? I don't think you necessarily have an answer to that question, but that's a good factor to to consider you know for future ufo researchers out there jeff yourself i'm going to consider it as i look into this subject further yeah to answer your question there i think you know probably the majority of them would be viewed during summer when more people are outside which would just be more natural because you know it gets cold here in wisconsin and nobody wants to be out but ironically i had my own sighting in February of all months, and it's coming up on the 20-year anniversary of that. So if you want to hear about my sighting, you'll have to listen to the second episode of right the podcast on. to get that. 
Cool, cool. Well, uh, I, will... I will say I really enjoy your boys' research. You guys do really good, deep, thorough research and have a great articulate way of, you know, of debriefing everything that you guys have looked up. And then, you know, it's just a great show. So just to back up what Mark was saying and to go support Jeff, like even if you don't live in Wisconsin, it's still going to be a great, high quality podcast to check out. So definitely do it, y'alls. Well, and that's what, yeah, that's what makes doing these kind of shows so great is like, even if you don't live in the place that we're talking about, this is a great sort of educational guide to even start doing this research yourself, you know? But yeah, Jeff, awesome work. You're always crushing it. I'd love to have your co-host on at some point as well. Yeah, maybe we'll get Mike plugged in here as well. Yeah, sure well why is he always dodging the bullet? Let, let us know when you know? he, you know, we'll know, you know, when the shaver... Uh, deep dive comes out in whatever form it comes out because I'd love to go into that if you guys would both join yeah. us on the show for that. So that that is Dean Bertram. Oh, okay. And that is theshavermystery.com if you want to learn more about that. He has a film fest coming up in Eau Claire in March and it's called the Midwest Weird Fest where he will be premiering that. So I'll definitely put the bug in his okay. ear. I think you can listen to him on the untold radio network on a program called talking weird where he goes into a lot of this stuff and he's really at the forefront of the, the shaver mystery and the Ray Palmer stuff. And Dean, he is a native Australian, but he found himself living in the North woods of Wisconsin. And that's (laughs) kind of where I discovered him was like, what is this Aussie doing up in North woods of Wisconsin? (laughs) And then I found out about his project and kind of made fast friends with him. Cool. And he is he is a deep pool of ufology. He is a PhD in American history, of all things, from Sydney University in Australia oh. and has done a ton of research on the history of American UFO belief. So he is a clearinghouse of that content. So I definitely will set him up with you the closer we get to, and maybe he can do a little esoteric America from his perception perspective. Cause I would be interested to see that. Right on. All right. Put your lighters in the air for Wisconsin. Right. <laughs> and, and until next time, folks, thanks for exploring esoteric America with us. One state at a time, big shout out to Wisconsin legends podcast. It is linked in the description. <laughs> Go and find out about Jeff's own personal first-hand encounter with a ufo right a ufo you said that's right not a, ufo not a, sighting okay i was just making sure it wasn't a lake monster because we did talk about those two today <laughs> there's much more to come so stay tuned and look out for the next episode of esoteric america here on the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast feed also on romans rising from the ashes Feed. And of course, if you're listening on the audio, the video is available on Rockfin and YouTube. So go there and support the show if you want to see some of the amazing slides that Jeff shared today. And until next time, happy trails. All right, ladies and gentlemen, and that was the new edition of Esoteric America. We'll probably be sticking with this format from now on. Uh, Definitely consider doing some research into wherever you live. Hit us up 
esotericamericapodcast at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, if you put a, a little presentation together, we'd love to have you on the show to talk about wherever you're from. Uh, it doesn't have to be too long. You know, we're thinking about even doing shorter episodes depending on the area. Some places you can only say so much about, but I hope you enjoyed it. Also, we're going to be putting Esoteric America out probably just on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy feed and maybe Rising from the Ashes, but it'll most likely be like a subset of this podcast where we explore geography and all the mysteries within this geographical known realm all the unknown things within it you know go place by place so to speak so if you enjoy that kind of thing uh stick around we're gonna be putting out more episodes i'm gonna be doing some Substack articles related to esoteric america so don't worry more esoteric america to come go over to the youtube channel to check out the old episodes if you haven't seen those already uh that's just my family thinks i'm crazy on youtube type that in and you'll find us check them all out support the show support our sponsors the hit kit the number one way to get lit a big shout out to the hit kit they are awesome i cannot recommend a hit kit enough especially moving to the colder weather maybe you're going out on a little snowboarding trip you're going out on the ski lift you know you want to smoke on the the lift right so but maybe you go on a few runs you don't want just weed hanging around in your pocket you definitely can't be rolling up on the lift i mean geez unless you're in some fancy lift that's all you know boxed in but Either way, get yourself a hit kit, save yourself the hassle, roll up in your lodge, and uh, and smoke in style on your winter getaway this winter. I don't know what that's like. I don't I don't ski particularly myself. So, but something about the change in the seasons inspired uh, change in the ad as well. Uh, it's the holidays coming up, so get your friends a hit kit. Use the promo code CRAZY to save at checkout. Uh, get somebody you love a hit kit. And speaking of gifts, my friend Isaac Lazell, who makes Oregonite, that's the company name. He makes some great Oregonite in Oregon. Some custom work. It's incredible stuff. You can get some Oregonite pyramids to spruce up your living space. You can even commission a custom order i commissioned a yin yang organite piece that's really beautiful and it sits here on my desk i love it so check out organ oregon.it on instagram and check the link in the description and hit up isaac for a really cool organite gift look forward to him being on the show he's been on the show uh, on patreon as well so supporters you guys can check that out uh, in the back catalog in the secret vault so but that's all for this esoteric america outro look forward to the next episode and until next time folks uh get out there and explore Yeah. The trouble's
Broadcasting the moon matrix from the lunar surface They want you confused like you never knew your purpose Hopping through the portals, dismantling the machine My family thinks I'm crazy, I can't believe what I've seen Memories of a war, the Pleiadians and Anunnaki Stuck within the genes of a copy of a human body DNA fractal, the universe within me Epiphanies of science is hoarded by the Illuminati Puppet masters know the power of the mantra Repeating mad lies till it has an effect on ya Subliminal messages hijacking perception Tricking the population with holographic projections We see through it the system is unraveling I'm astral traveling Through the library of the Vatican On a sacred journey I embark with the squad Forever spitting truth Like Mark on the pod Gotta know the facts Never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up In the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers Searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade I awoke in a deep underground military base Zero recollection of how I got to this place Alien corpses floating in glass cylinders Must have been extracted when they crashed into us Animal hybrids contained in the cages A lion with the eagle head Monkeys with reptilian faces Losing my mind and I'm feeling desperate I look around the room and I see no sign of an exit All of a sudden the wall flickers away Revealing a hangar full of spacecraft My getaway, I run to the nearest one See a guard knock him out Robbing for his plasma gun Hop in the ship, take the controls They highly intuitive, I figure it out easily Lift off, accelerate through a tunnel until I see the light Fly into the sky, get flanked by six F-35s Gotta know the facts, never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality, looking for the answers Searching through the galaxy, you might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety, is no measure of health To be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.